Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see you. It's only two weeks away. Only two weeks away, season 14 of Finding God in the Music. I I do believe I have the best collection of of songs yet. They're all from the 2020s, but that's not, we're not there yet. Still have to wait two weeks. Today I want to talk to you about everyday mystics. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. More than any other gospel, the gospel of Luke emphasizes Jesus at table. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus pretty much eats his way through the Gospel. There's there's so many meals in the Gospel of Luke. And part of what Luke is showing us is how Jesus was willing to share his table with anyone that would share the table with him. So it's a bit surprising how this story works out here in the end of Luke chapter 10. Concerns a Martha and Mary. If we allow ourselves to also be informed by John's gospel, we might remember that Martha and Mary have a brother named Lazarus. They were friends with Jesus. Again, from John's gospel, we learn that this Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus live in Bethany, a village just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. And it seems as though Jesus was in the habit of staying with them when he was in Jerusalem. Except he's got 12 disciples with him, so it isn't just Jesus. It's Jesus and 12 disciples. That's, uh, that's a lot of house guests, 13 people showing up. So this has happened that Jesus and his 12 disciples have come. They're being hosted in the home of Martha and Mary. And Martha immediately gets to work in the kitchen. I can only imagine how much work is involved in preparing meals for 13 house guests. And though Martha is busy in the kitchen preparing a meal, Mary, her sister, is in fact not helping in the kitchen, but is seated at the feet of the Lord, listening to what he's saying. Martha becomes irritated about this. She is convinced that Mary is not doing what she should do. She should be in the kitchen helping her. I imagine that uh, Martha maybe tried to drop some hints by banging the pots and pounds around rather loudly. But Mary is enraptured with the word of the Lord. She hears none of that. 
So finally, Martha can stand it no longer. And she comes into the room where Jesus is teaching and the disciples, including Mary, are seated at his feet listening. And she says, Jesus, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? Tell her now to help me. Verse 41. But the Lord answered her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This story is about how to welcome the Lord into our life. Jesus has come to this village. He's been welcomed into the home of Martha and Mary. And Martha presumes she knew how to best welcome the Lord. That is by preparing a meal. This is the best way to welcome the Lord. To prepare a meal. But Mary made a different choice on how to best welcome the Lord into their home. Mary decided that Jesus was more interested in her being a disciple than being domestic help. I mean, we could approach this story in numerous ways. I mean, one way is that that Martha was adopting the more conventional role of women in this culture. And Mary doesn't go along with that. Mary says, no, the Lord is teaching And I'm not going to let his disciples be only a boys club. I'm just going to sit down at his feet and listen. She decided that Jesus was more interested in a disciple than domestic help. Now, Mary and Martha do not represent two types of people. You hear this all the time. I'm a Martha person. I'm a Mary person. Mary and Martha do not, they do not represent two types of people, a contemplative person and a practical person. No, Mary and Martha represent two choices. Jesus, in fact, tells Martha that Mary has made the better choice. So it's not a personality type. It's rather a choice. And Jesus said that Mary had made the better choice. It's interesting how many of the commentaries, even among the church fathers, are very quick to defend Martha. In fact, even Augustine, I wasn't going to say this part, but I decided to. And Ephraim the Syrian both said that Martha had a more passionate love than Mary. (laughs) You get the feeling that Augustine of Hippo and Ephraim the Syrian are afraid that too many women are going to start acting like Mary and then who's going to fix me supper? (laughs) Okay, I'll back off on that, but I did notice that this week. I'm actually quite certain that Mary was as willing as Martha to serve her guests a meal at the appropriate time. Jesus says that Mary, not Martha, made a better choice. 
And what was Mary's choice? She chose to be an everyday mystic. Now, I know that there are people who are nervous about the word mystic. As if it somehow points to some sort of new age occultism. It does not. That is not what we are talking about. When I use the word mystic, and I'm using it in the, history, in the tradition of the church over 2,000 years. A mystic is a person who seeks at some level, who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the divine mystery. That's what we mean by mystic. A mystic is a person who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the, the divine mystery. Now I could say, instead of using the word mystic, I could use the word spiritual. And that, that's, that would be more tame, but that's the problem. Spiritual has become such a cliche that it's hollowed out and empty. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Everybody's spiritual and we have this vacuous spirituality that doesn't seem to mean anything. And so I use a word that has more bite to it. Mystic. And I'm speaking about everyday mystics because the Bible presents mysticism, that is, the seeking and experiencing of the divine as entirely normative. I mean, if you just read the Bible and read the biographies of the people that are paraded through scripture, they're all in one way or another, a mystic. They're hearing from God. They're having dreams, visions. God is interacting with them. God is speaking to them. God is healing them. All these sorts of things are presented in the Bible as entirely normal. Mysticism is nothing more, nothing less than a direct experience with God. Now, in 1971, Carl Rahner said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or they will cease to be anything at all. Okay, that was Carl Rahner, 1971. What Carl Rahner called the future in 1971, we call the present. We have arrived at that reality. What Rahner foresaw is our reality in the present moment. That if people are not experiencing God, that is, if they're not a mystic in the sense that they somehow experience God, then they're right on the precipice of not even bothering to be a Christian anymore. Because what's the point? The only representation or expression of Christianity that is growing in the world today is global Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity. It's the only one that's growing. If it's growing globally, it's global Pentecostalism or charismatic Christianity because people are not interested in a Christianity that is only traditional or only cerebral. Now, here at Word of Life Church, we have great respect for the great tradition, and we, we bring the historic traditions of the church into much of our practice here. So we completely respect and, and find great life in the great tradition. But what I'm saying is, if it's only tradition, people aren't going to hang around for that much longer. And here at Word of Life Church, we try real hard not to be dumb. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I look, I write books on theology, so I'm not opposed to a cerebral academic approach to understanding the faith. What I'm saying, though, is if it's only traditional or only cerebral, people aren't going to stay around much longer. What people are interested in, though, and what people actually long for is an experience of God. Am I right? 
people want to experience God. And the good news is this is precisely what we're created for. Each and every one of you are created and given the capacity to have experiences with God, thus becoming what I'm describing as an everyday mystic, where it's just part of your life to experience God. Now, when Jesus says there is need of only one thing, I think he's drawing upon what King David said in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing I seek. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing. The one thing is to experience the presence of the Lord, to perceive the beauty of the Lord, and then to be able to inquire of the Lord where he is present to you. It speaks of a temple, you know, but this is a 3,000-year-old psalm. We understand that now we are the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Lord. And the one thing is to open to the presence of God, Behold the beauty of God. And then be able to inquire of the Lord in the Holy Temple. This past week was a, was a, a big week if you're like into the universe. <laughs> the, this week, I think it was on Monday, Monday or Tuesday, the first photos from the James Webb Space telescope were released and they're truly mind-boggling. I've got one. Oh, there it is. There it is. That's the very first one. That was released maybe on Monday. Now, as you look at this, you see the, 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 the spiky stars. You know, there's, there's about a dozen of those. You can ignore those. I mean, they're nice, but those, those are local stars. Those are just stars. Just stars. Every other point of light you see is a galaxy. Some of them with trillions of stars. You can even see some of them are curved. That's not a fault of the image. That is the reality of space-time through gravity curving galaxies. Oh, brother. I see some spiral galaxies. Now, what's really interesting is that that image taken from the Webb Space Telescope covers this much of the sky. Imagine holding a grain of sand at arm's length and seeing only that portion of the sky. That's what's there. That's all. I mean, think about standing outside and the whole sky and you're looking at arm's length at a grain of sand. That's what's in that image. You understand? We live in a universe of over a hundred billion galaxies that contain some, the estimate right now is, some 200 sextillion stars. And somebody says, What is a sextillion? It's a very sexy number. <laughs> sextillion is a million billion. 
words, no, a billion trillion. I want to get that right. <laughs> My mind is still just. <laughs> our, our universe contains 200 million billion, 200 billion trillion stars. See, my mind is fighting it. No, there can't be that many. There can't be that many. There are 200 billion trillion stars. In other words, stars, there, there are far more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. Yeah. Of course, we're seeing images of light. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. Which is pretty fast. Except if you're talking about in the universe. Because the universe is so vast. So it takes eight minutes for the light of the sun to reach the earth. Our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, it takes four years. So if you go out tonight and you get a little thing, a little app on your phone, find where, where the heck is Proxima Centauri? And you find, oh, there it is. And you, you find it, you locate it. You're actually seeing it as it was four years ago because it takes light four years to get here. The nearest galaxy, you know, we live, we live in the Milky Way galaxy with about 400 billion stars in our galaxy. The next nearest galaxy, it takes light 25,000 years to get here. So if you can find, you know, I forgot the name of it. It's a dwarf galaxy and you can find it. And there it is. And you are seeing light that left there 25,000 years ago. Uh, the oldest light we're getting from the Webb telescope is 13.6 billion years old. That's, that's within 200 million years of the Big Bang. I get shivers. Now, does this not fill your soul with awe and compel you to worship the creator? The creator, the logos. In the beginning was the logos. The word, the idea, the reason, the logic. In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. And all things were made by the Logos. And apart from the Logos, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay. And the Logos became flesh. Human flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have beheld his beauty. Beauty as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Through the incarnation, the creator becomes a creature in order to save creation. Creator speaks, let there be 206 trillion stars at least with all their corresponding planets and galaxies and all of that. And in the fullness of time, the Logos, the word that speaks this into existence, enters into creation as a creature 
in order to save creation, in order that, that creation itself might reach the goal of theosis and participate in the divine nature. And how does the word become flesh? How does the logos enter into creation? Through Mary. Through the theotokos, the God-bearer. If you go into an Orthodox church on the apse, you'll see this image, Mary, with Jesus very figuratively represented in her womb. Okay, remember now, who, who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the Logos. This is the one through whom and for whom are all things. This is the one who is the Logos who brings into existence this, this universe that we're beginning now through these space telescopes to understand the grandeur and vastness of. This one comes, becomes, becomes a creature within the womb of Mary. And so they have the little word more spacious than the heavens. Well, this is a poetic, artistic reference to Mary's womb. It's more spacious than the heaven because it comes to contain the creator itself. Ah, these are divine mysteries. If, if your faith feels a little flat these days, just meditate on that for 10 minutes and see if it doesn't begin to thrill you. Now this one, this Logos, through whom and for whom are all things, this Logos who speaks creation into existence is the one who arrives as a guest at the home of Martha and Mary. This is the Lord who wants to make his abode with you. How should you welcome him? Not by first trying to do something like Martha did. Instead, Imitate Mary, for Mary sat at his feet and listened to what he was saying. Can you learn to sit with Jesus and listen to what he's saying? This is what a mystic does. A mystic learns, it's, it's learned actually, how to sit with Jesus and listen. You can do this every day. That's, that's the path to becoming an, an everyday mystic. And you, you can learn to do this, especially if you're given the words that will bring you into the Holy of Holies where you can acknowledge and be cognizant of and aware of the presence of the Lord. And this is what I teach in prayer school. That's where I give these words. I'm doing two more prayer schools this year. One online, August 28, 29, 30. 8 to 9.30 p.m. Central Time. You need to register for it. That's online. So that's online. That's everybody. Anybody, you know. I know those of you in Europe, it's a bad time. We've done others. We'll do another one sometime. But, but for those of you in North America, yeah, that's a, that's a good time. 8 to 9.30 Central. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, August 28, 29.30. And then we're doing an in-person one right here. Word of Life Church, St. Joseph, Missouri, November 4th and 5th. A Friday and a Saturday, and then, you know, got church on Sunday. So those are coming up, and you, the, both of them you have to register for, but you can do that. I want you to know about that. The essential practice of an everyday mystic is sitting or, or walking with Jesus. Now, don't expect to hear a word, a, a quote, word, 
every day. Like, you know, like Jesus telling you to do something or giving you some little insight. Don't expect to hear a word every day, but do expect the presence of the word to you. The word of the Lord can enter your soul without necessarily being comprehended by your mind. To be in the presence of Jesus means the word of the Lord is coming to you, even if it doesn't come through your rational intellect. It's, just, it's coming into your soul. And the word of the Lord is doing its work within you. It's forming you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A secularized spirituality, unfortunately, which is very dominant today, seeks to use God to make God a practical utility. I hate that. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's the worst way to draw near to God. Prayer then deteriorates into you telling God what to do. Lord, tell my sister to help me. Tell her, tell her, Lord, because I want to be her Lord. <laughs> Prayer is not a means of controlling people according to how you think they ought to be controlled. That's not what prayer is about. We must not try to turn God into a tool, a practical utility. That is really an attempt to turn the living God into an idol. Learn instead to sit in the presence of the Logos without any agenda. That's hard to do because we, we come with all, we have all of our personal, political, social, theological, financial agendas. And if those agendas drive your praying, it's going to be very poor. That's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we need words that, are, that come from without Words that, that have nothing to do with our agenda. And we pray those words and we're formed by those words. One of, the, one of the best things you can do if you want to become an everyday mystic is to learn to sit in, with, in the presence of Jesus until your agendas begin to evaporate. And you're not driven by your own thinking about society and politics and culture and, and all these other things that drive us so much of the time. Sit with Jesus and just say this. I don't want anything from you, Jesus. I just want to be with you. And pray that until it's true. Just pray that until it's true. Jesus, I don't want anything from you. I just want to be with you. The one thing I seek is to behold your beauty. To perceive you as you are. And then over time, as that begins to happen, becomes a reality to you, begin to be you begin to be just charmed by the beauty of Christ, then inquire of the Lord in his temple. By which I would say, maybe things that are troubling you or you have questions about, just introduce them. Just, just bring them as a third party. It's you, Jesus, and then bring this third party of this question, this issue, this matter, and see if Jesus responds to it. If he doesn't, then leave it alone. But Jesus may begin to help you see things as he sees them. And that's the point. As we adopt the habits of everyday mystics, we begin to hear the word of the Lord and hearing the word of the Lord helps us to see the world in a right way through the eyes of divine love with deep gratitude. Glory is all around us. It's all around us. Don't miss it. 
We recognize glory in like in the web photo. The web space tell it. We recognize glory there. That should take your breath away. And, and we do recognize glory in it because it's new to us. We're not accustomed to it. We don't see it every day. The glory of the cosmos with 200 billion galaxies. But I'm going to tell you something. The glory of a cosmos with 200 billion galaxies can be seen in your own backyard. If you only have eyes to see them. Yes, the glory of the Lord is seen in 200 billion galaxies, but it's also seen in every single leaf. Do you see the glory of the Lord there? Sometime today, just walk out, pick the first leaf you come and just behold the glory of the Lord in it. It's there. One of our problems as modern people is that we're too insulated from creation. Be more intentional about your feet touching the loamy earth and your head being under an open heaven. We've got too many floors and too many ceilings and we live too much of our life there. An everyday mystic cultivates the awareness of who we are as humans. We are the synthesis of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. Now, Next to the Bible, the book that has most influenced me theologically is The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. People who know me know that about me because I talk about it a lot because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've read this book four times and now I'm listening to it. So I'm on my fifth time through, but my first time to listen to it, which is different. It enters you differently. Yesterday, I went for a 90-minute walk. The first 30 minutes, I prayed. And then the last hour, I listened to the Brothers Karamazov. I heard two chapters. It worked out. It was one of those moments where it works out just perfect. Pray for 30 minutes and then started listening. And I got back to my car just as it was done. It was one of those kind of moments. I listened to The Onion and Cana of Galilee. Two of my favorite chapters, The Onion and Cana of Galilee. When I heard the end of the chapter of Cana of Galilee, I thought, oh, I'd already written the sermon. I wrote the sermon on Friday. I thought, no, this has got to be in the sermon. Because it communicates, it, it portrays a mystical experience of Alyosha Karamazov, a mystical experience that changed the rest of his life, that completely altered the rest of his life. Okay, here's the scenario. Alyosha Karamazov is 20 years old. He is at this moment living in a monastery, though he is not going to become a monk, but he's living in a monastery. His beloved elder, his mentor, Elder Zosima, has died that day. They're going to read the gospel over his corpse all night long. Alyosha is heartbroken because he loved Zosima so dearly. And he's on his knees and one of the other monks is reading the gospel. And they get to the part where the monk is reading 
the story of the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee where Jesus turns the water to wine. It's late at night and Alyosha falls asleep. He falls asleep during the reading of the wedding feast of Cana. And he has a dream. And he dreams that suddenly this, this room, this cell, where the body of Elder Zosim is laid out and one monk is reading and, and he's there just praying. He falls asleep. But in his dream, suddenly the room expands. And it's no longer this room in the monastery. It is the wedding feast at Cana. They're at Cana now. And Elder Zosima gets up. He's raised. He gets up out of his casket. And he comes over to where Alyosha is, is kneeling and he lifts him up. And then he says, look, look at the light, which means Jesus. Look at the light. And he says, I'm afraid to. No, don't be afraid. Look at the light. And then he realizes that people from everywhere are coming to the wedding feast because everyone is invited. And he begins to understand that this is why the Logos became flesh, that he might turn all of creation into a wedding feast. And then he wakes up and he's standing up. He'd fallen asleep on his knees. In his, in his dream, he dreamed that Zosima raised And he, he wakes up and he's standing and he walks outdoors. Filled with rapture, his soul yearned for freedom, space, vastness. Over him, the heavenly dome, full of quiet shining stars hung boundlessly. From the zenith to the horizon, the still, dim, milky way stretched its double strands. Night, fresh and quiet, almost unstirring, enveloped the earth. The white towers and golden domes of the church gleamed in the sapphire sky. The luxuriant autumn flowers in the flower beds near the house had fallen asleep until morning. The silence of the earth seemed to merge with the silence of the heavens. The mystery of the earth touched the mystery of the stars. Alyosha stood gazing and suddenly, as if he'd been cut down, threw himself to the earth. He did not know why he was embracing it. He did not try to understand why he longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss all of it. But he was kissing it, weeping, sobbing, and watering it with his tears. And he vowed ecstatically to love it, to love it unto ages of ages. What was he weeping for? Oh, in his rapture, he wept even for the stars that shone on him from the abyss. And he was not ashamed of this ecstasy. It was as if threads from all those innumerable worlds of God all came together in his soul. He wanted to forgive everyone and for everything. With each moment, he clearly felt almost tangibly something as firm and immovable as this heavenly vault descend into his soul. Some sort of idea, as it were, was coming to reign in his mind now for the whole of his life and under ages of ages. He fell to the earth a weak youth and rose up a fighter, steadfast for the rest of his life. And he knew it and felt it suddenly in that very moment of his ecstasy. Never, never in all his life would Alyosha forget this moment. 
Someone visited my soul in that hour. He would say afterwards with firm belief in his words. Stand with me. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The heavens declare the glory of God. And God can also be found in the grain and grape that's become bread and wine on the table of communion. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Join with me now in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So calm you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.